You're listening to The Melting Podcast, a writing variety show featuring a little of everything from everyone, everywhere. This is a Pupacon bonus episode. Oh, look, a microphone. Oh, God. It's recording. Yeah, it is. I like recording. I'm sure you do. You know I do. Yeah. And and who are you? You don't know me? The, now I'm sad. The microphone is, is, is not familiar with you. That's a lie. Introduce yourself to the microphone and anybody who might be listening inside the microphone. Hello, microphone, and anyone who might be listening inside the microphone. I am Erin Kazmark, grill mistress of the Melting Podcast. And I'm AF Grappin, the head chef of the Melting Podcast. And like she was mutter singing earlier, it is another Balticon bonus episode. Yeehaw! What are the Balticon bonus episodes? Well, these are episodes that were live recorded. Recorded. <laughs> okay. Anyway, this is why we edit. <laughs> these are episodes that were live recorded at Balticon 51 panels and interviews, whatever it was that we happened to get this past year. Not not just Balticon 51, just Balticon in general, but we, well, happen, yeah. we happen to be up to the ones from Balticon 51. Yeah, so it makes sense, because all we have left is content from Balticon 51. Yeah, but Balticon bonus episodes, we've had all the way back from Balticon 49. Because we're awesome like yeah, that. Yeah, we are. So yeah. But yeah, this, this is a panel from Balticon 51. Enjoy! Can, I, can you just salt them in here and there? Um, and uh, well, you have to be careful about vocabulary when you're doing a fight scene. You're using five-letter words like punch or blunt or shoot. Those are really crude, and you want to be more sophisticated, like exsanguinate or eviscerate. You, know. you, you can't you, you'd be a little more flowery with the language because you know, bludgeon. Yes, an excellent <laughs> fight scene word, more than five letters, and most importantly, I um, speak a lot of me. Oh. <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to read from uh, chapter 6 of Monster Whisperer. At this point, um, the main character, Dale Clearwater, has had her, um, her ship has been hijacked by um, the members of the Xenoform Emancip Emancipation Society who believe that Monster Whisperers should not, in fact, be used as, that monsters should, tentacle monsters should not be used as pets and companions, that they should be wild and free out in the universe, far away from where they might corrupt humanity. And she's trying to sneak back on board her ship. Dale Clearwater fought against panic. There was nothing she could do now but wait, watching through the narrow crack in the Nalcheka's shell for an opportunity to slip out undetected. Though she wasn't sure how she could tell the massive tentacle monster that the time was right. She had to trust it. A small patch of ground rolled past the crack, a frustratingly limited point of view. From what she, for what seemed like far too long, all she saw through the gap were ashes, charred tree stumps, and the occasional blackened bone. The apocalypse landscape was not, only, was not only the result of whatever weapon the hijackers had used to create the clearing where the ship had landed. It was also evidence of the depth of the hijackers' hypocrisy. Their weapon had destroyed countless wild creatures to make a space where the ship could land, possibly even, even including wild tentacle monsters of the same sort they professed to defend. The Nalcheka's gate was uneven, 
while the injuries it had sustained defending Dale against the creature, a very plausible reason for wanting to get back on the ship, while the industries into Hmm. Okay. I wrote this a long time ago, right? Give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> while, the while the injuries it had sustained defending Dale gave the creature a very plausible reason for wanting to get back on the ship, Dale winced in sympathy with each stride of its injured foot. It was in pain, she knew, and there was little she could do about it except try to get her ship back. The Nalcheka stopped moving, and she felt an impact through the monster's body coinciding with a dull metallic thud. They had reached the ship, and the creature was bumping its shell against the big cargo doors where it had emerged a few hours before. Go on, shoo, it said a voice from the ship's external speakers. You're free. Get away from the doors. The voice belonged to Dr. Florence, the leader of the Xenoform Emancipation Society hijackers who had stolen Dale's ship. Move along, you stupid beast. You don't live here anymore. Another bump, and another. There was a whine of motors, the unmistakable sound of the cargo doors rolling open. It had worked. They were admitting the monster back onto the ship. Dale's heart hammered. Timing. She had to somehow get away from the monster while they were distracted. As if she had told it the plan, the Nalcheka opened its shell wide enough for her to slip out. She ran to the edge of the cargo doors, peering inside with one eye as the monster waited for the gap to open high enough to admit it. Good work, she whispered. The hijackers would be watching closely. If she went in too soon, they would see her. But the moment would come. It had to. Slowly, the door slid up into its housing until the Nalcheka could duck slightly and shuffle inside. It stopped and settled to the deck, pulling its undamaged limbs inside, the inside its shell. Only the ones that had been hurt now showed. A damaged eye, a deeply bruised leg, a crushed tendril hand. After long, anxious minutes, Dr. Florence and two of her followers entered the cargo bay, wheeling Dale's medical cart in front of them. The door through which they had entered stood open, no doubt to allow a quick escape if the Nalcheka turned hostile. Their caution was warranted. The Nalcheka was the largest and strongest monster in her collection. Mishandling it could be dangerous. Dale peered cautiously at the approaching hijackers. She hadn't been seen yet, and as the two disappeared around the curve of the Nalcheka's body, Dale felt safe to slip into the ship and make a quiet dash for the door. She expected the Nalcheka to attack as soon as she was in, providing a distraction, but instead it laid its injured, injured limbs out on the side away from the door. An even better distraction, thought Dale, hurrying silently to the door. She had always considered the monsters to be intelligent beings, but this one was showing unusual planning and foresight. Had the full-on monster orgy... Uh, sorry about that. Um, had the full-on event in the woods been the trigger for that, or had it always been that bright? There would be time to investigate later. Before she had been thrown off the ship, Dale had heard one of the hijackers tell Dr. Florence that Dale's apprentice, Christine, had retreated to the maintenance passages of the ship. She hoped that was still the case, even though she had never been in those spaces herself. She hurried into her quarters, grabbed a coverall and shoes, and found the panel that led to the maintenance passages. This was the domain of her ship's virtual intelligence, Vi, and the drones it used to perform repairs and upkeep. These tunnels snaked through every part of the ship, wrapping around the living spaces and vital systems to allow discrete access to every part. When she popped the panel open, Dale felt a headache bloom in her temples and a sudden need to breathe deeply. Carbon dioxide, she remembered one of them said. They flooded the passages with carbon dioxide. She closed the passage and took several deep breaths until the headache cleared. Christine couldn't hide in there, not and stay alive. Dale would have liked to believe that Christine had found somewhere else to hide, but if she had been flushed out of the maintenance tunnels, chances were good she'd been captured. Or she could be dead. 
If Christine didn't realize they were poisoning the air if she learned too late and didn't make it out, Dale pushed that thought away. Christine was alive. She wouldn't let that belief go, not yet. Dale dressed and crept back to the door. The passageway outside was clear, and there was no sign she had been discovered. Through the transparent aluminum wall of the cargo bay, she saw Dr. Florence and one of her crew working on the, the Nalcheka's wounds. It wasn't cooperating much. At every touch, it flinched, and a twitch from a creature that large carried bruising force. As she watched, it knocked, her medical, it knocked the medical cart over, scattering supplies across the floor. Good job, she whispered. Keep them busy. She crept out into the hallway and had a quick glance into the lounge to make sure Christine wasn't being held there, then turned back to follow the hallway around toward the guest quarters. The transparent wall of the cargo bay was great for keeping an eye on the monsters, but Dale felt vulnerable, knowing that at any, at any moment the hijackers could show up and spot her. Then Dale spotted a woman she didn't recognize, leaning against the wall opposite the guest quarters, arms folded across her chest, electro-stunner holstered at her belt. Dale ducked back out of sight around the curve of the hallway. That pretty much settled it. They had Christine, and they were holding her in the guest quarters. Dale, re Dale was relieved, but now what? She couldn't hide in the maintenance passages. She could probably find a spot out of sight in the Chicondras enclosure. The foliage was dense enough. But that was beyond this guard, and she didn't see any way to sneak past her. Overpowering her was out of the question, although Dale did... Anything Dale did would betray her presence on the ship and spoil the whole plan. Nor could Dale afford to wait for an opportunity. Her spot wasn't immediately visible to the guard, but it was only a matter of time before some, someone came along and spotted her. The console outside Christine's quarters chirped and a voice emerged. All right, everyone, I've got ship's communications back up. We're slave to the Kenway, so as soon as their AI has the system spun up, we can take off. The voice sounded, echoed strangely, coming from every console on the ship at the same time. Time was getting short. Dale had to get past that guard quick. She looked around, desperately trying to think of a way to get to the Chicondras' section of the cargo bay, but nothing came to mind. There was nothing to do but change the plan. Dale crouched, then sprinted around the corridor in the direction of the guard. She barreled into her at full speed, yanking the electro-stunner out of its holster and knocking the woman to the ground. She aimed the weapon and pulled the trigger, but nothing happened. Safety, Dale thought, and fumbled with the weapon while the guard scrambled to her feet. The guard shook her head and looked up. What do you think you're... Oh! The hijacker figured out what was going on. At the same moment, Dale found the safety and fired. Blue sparks leapt down a beam of light and danced over the guard's body, making her jerk and writhe. Dale slammed her hand on the button to open the door, grabbed the guard, and pulled her in. Miss Clearwater! Christine squealed. Christine was dressed in exercise clothes, marked here and there with grime and dust. Her hands and feet were taped to an office chair, sitting in the center of the room. As soon as Dale had cut her free, Christine wrapped her arms around Dale for an enthusiastic hug. I thought they killed you. Not yet, said Dale. We need to tie this one up. Here, said Christine, taking a roll of tape from the guard's belt. This is what they used on me. Together, they secured the woman's wrists and ankles, placed a strip across her mouth, then shoved the hijacker into the bathroom and closed the door. Amateurs, Dale muttered. Christine gave her a quizzical look. Pros would have had something more sophisticated to tie people up with. Their whole operation seems only half-planned. Now what, said Christine. How much time have I got left? Three minutes. Dale checked the charge on the electro-stunner and found it nearly full. Now we take my ship back. Do you know how many of them there are? Seven if you don't have, count her, said Christine, count, nodding toward the bathroom. All right, this isn't impossible. They still know, don't know I've gotten aboard, and if we can get you a weapon... The room console let out a bit of static, and then Dr. Florence's voice emerged. Lusk, you're not at your port. post. Report. 
Christine pressed a console on the a control on the console. Uh, she just went to the bathroom. Dale grimaced, hoping the deception wouldn't be discovered, but her luck had run out. A voice boomed from every speaker on the ship. On the ship, alert! Lusk has gone missing. It's possible that Clearwater has gotten back on board the ship. Everyone, come to the main corridor. If you see Clearwater or Delavos, assume they're armed. Dale swore. Christine put a hand on Dale's arm. Quick, I have an idea. She stepped to the panel covering the maintenance passage and pulled it open. We can't go in there, Dale exclaimed. We'll suffocate. Take deep breaths and then hold it. We should have enough time to get up to the dorsal hatch. Dorsal? You mean on top of the ship? Right. Once we're up there, we can use the escape hatch to get onto the bridge. Now, no time to explain. Now, come on. Dale took deep breaths until she found the first touch of dizziness, then held her breath and followed Christine into the cramped space. Christine took her hand, guiding her through the darkness and she, until she placed Dale's hand on the rung of the ladder. A moment later, she found herself climbing up behind the young woman, fumbling for the rungs as she felt the first urge to take a breath. She swallowed and clamped down tighter, holding the breath in. It couldn't be much further. They had to have climbed at least five meters, and the ship wasn't that big top to bottom. Dull red flashed against her eyes in time with her rapidly accelerating heartbeat. She could feel it in her neck, hear it in her ears. How could the air have lasted so short a time? How could it have taken so long to just get a few steps and climb a ladder? Dale's hand landed on Christine's foot, and she fumbled for a grip on the rung, flailing in panic. The urge to take a breath squeezed her chest, and a wave of nausea suddenly gripped her insides. She wanted to shout, scream, cry, anything but wait here on the ladder for darkness to take her. Then there was a clank and a pop and a hiss, and light and rain streamed down on her from above. Oh, thank the stars, she said, and the breath she took did her no good whatsoever. Blackness constricted her vision and dizziness filled her head. A hand gripped her arm, slipped on the rain-slicked fabric, finally grabbing the cuff of her sleeve. She blacked out, then came to, lying in the broad, curving upper hull of the ship. The storm had finally made good on its threats, and blasted wind and rain at her from what seemed like every angle. And I'll leave it there. See whether Dan gets her ship back. And the room went silent. I'll go next. Can we make you be timekeeper? Uh, yeah, I can do that. Let me just save this file. What time? What time? When we stop? Half past? Fifteen minutes? Yeah, okay. yeah fifteen yeah. minutes. Exactly. So I'm Jennifer Povey. I write a variety of science fiction and fantasy. This is my current project. It's the this is the first book in the series which I finished last year. The second book is in final edits right now. I was hoping to have it done for this con, but. Other, other projects got in the way. So I'm going to read, and my main character, character Anna, and her boyfriend Victor have discovered that there's, a nasty, there's an evil fairy behind all the stuff that's going on. And they are trying, they are trying to, deal with, to deal with this person before they cause any more trouble. Anna should have known her relaxed, good feeling would not last. The first annoyance was banal. They got stuck in traffic. Even Victor could not find a way around the problem, which seemed to have spread across several alternate routes. It left Anna staring out of the window. She was far from paranoid enough 
to blame it on enemy action. It was just typical for the city. They're in Washington, D.C. There seemed to be the usual mess of SUVs being driven by people who would never have dreamed of putting half a wheel off-road. One guy on a heavily chromed motorbike pulled up next to the van, but even two wheels wasn't enough to get through that. A tingling of awareness flowed through her, then tightened in her gut. Duck, she called, just as the biker pulled up a gun. The bullet smashed the window and passed over her head. Little pieces of glass fell on her. The van swerved, but she knew, knew Victor was okay. He was just taking evasive action. The biker was following. She contemplated opening the door into him, but was paralyzed by the risk for a moment. Then she realized it was the demon. He wasn't wearing a helmet. She could almost see both the form he wore and the flickering of hellfire. She should have done it, especially as he grabbed for the door and he came closer again. Should have and did, as if it was an accident, the door flying open. It did not quite knock him off the bike, but he had to let go to stay on. She pulled it closed and locked it again. Out of here would be a nice place to get working on it. Then she heard a different kind of shot. The bike slid into a lane and one of those SUVs hit it. Hell, Anna swore. Dead? Victor asked. She shook her head. It's the demon. Can it die? Not really, but if they did enough damage, it would have to flee at least. He turned down a narrow street. I'm keeping driving. I don't know who shot it, but it was probably one of our friends. Anna worried her lower lip. They know the risks and have as good a chance of getting away as we do. Maybe better, depending on what they're driving. He wrestled the van through another turn. At least we didn't do anything until we were attacked. Good work with the door. Anna sighed. Kind of a risky move. I mean, straight out of the movies and all. I think we lost him for now. I think our friend shot out his tyres. Yeah, well, he'll just steal another vehicle. Half tempted to dump the van at a metro lot. Anna considered that. Might not be a bad idea. We can come back for it. She'd already noticed that they'd got all the stuff out. Would take us forever to find Celia on foot, though. How about we set things up so she finds us? That might not be a bad idea. In the end, they did not dump the van in a parking lot. They met up with one of Lissa's friends and traded it for a black sedan. The new vehicle made Anna feel even more as if she was in a thriller. People always drove black sedans in thrillers. <laughs> Maybe she was just... She sighed a bit as they drove back to the church. She wanted her normal life back and at the same time was starting to almost enjoy the thrill of this, the adrenaline rush of risking her life. That scared her. Victor enjoyed it and thought, no, she would never end up like Victor. They were too different. That was what drew her to him, or part of it, you know, the echoes of opposition. Maybe it was the sexy villain thing. The fact that he wasn't really a villain made it guilt-free, like light ice cream. <laughs> the building was flat and square. She hadn't noticed before that it did not look like a church, and there was no cross, inside or out. So, you think we should lure Celia into a trap? She's been kind of smart for that. I'm tired of reacting. We need to do something. I agree. I just... Victor sighed and slumped against the wall. Don't you dare give up. He cracked an eye at her. No, but I could use a few days off.
Me too, she admitted, but we can't, and we don't have time to mess around, do we? No, but the truth is, he paused, Celia's tougher than anyone I've faced in a long time. And you're not sure we can beat her? I'm not. I have a horrible feeling it's already too late for Erica, and she seems to be outthinking us at every move. Anna nodded. If we can draw her out, then we have her on our ground, not hers. Yeah, I just wish I had any clue how to do so. If I'm right about it, then maybe, just maybe we can bluff her? Convince her we already know? What would that gain us? It would get her to come after me. Anna was sure of that. It was all in how Celia acted before. Then we surround her. Knowing the risks, Anna thought later, was not quite the same as taking them. Basically calling Celia out, it made for a heavy feeling in her stomach. Yet she was not going to keep running. She was going to fight, but it had to be in her own way. She could not kill Celia. She had to imprison her. Ideally, if she was pure fae, maybe they could send her back to fairy for a very, very long time. Anna shook her head. Setting the bail bait was not easy. They had had to resort to the newspaper personal. Sorry for the stumble there. This is the proof I'm reading from. <laughs> so there were still a few errors in it. And while it was already up online, she had every reason to assume there would be no actual reaction until the next day. Thus, she sat curled in the church basement, miserable. There was a selection of books, but they were all on religion or parenting. Neither topic was something she wanted to think about right at that moment. She was not sure what she wanted to think about. Her life had narrowed down and she could no longer imagine not being on the run, a fugitive from injustice. Anna closed her eyes. The energy swirled around her. She wanted answers, but Gaia was not giving her any. Power, but no information. Maybe she was supposed to work things out for herself to grow thus in wisdom. Despite that, she asked. She tried to, anyway. All she got, at least to start with, was a feeling of strength and support. Was she doing the right thing? Yes, she knew suddenly. A surety that erased all of her doubt. Of course, they could... If it was all a lie, then she was lost anyway, and she felt all, something almost akin to a gentle tap to get her attention. It was not a lie, and she felt that warmth flow through her. It was not in words, it was not even in concept she could grasp. She just knew everything would be all right. She would be all right. Celia could only kill her, not do her real harm. She felt protected, loved. It was all irrational and she knew it. She also knew she was perfectly safe in the building. A moment later, she knew Celia and the shapeshifter were outside. She stood up. She knew Erica was not there. Guys, she stepped out into the corridor. We got company. Tag looked at her, impressed. Tag's one of her friends. Question is, what do we do about it? Lissa shrugged. She can't get in. Not with the wards we have set, but... Anna glanced around. Where's Victor? And then she knew that too. She ran for the door as soon as she realised he was outside alone and vulnerable. It was stupid. Of all the people there, Victor was best able to look after himself. She would only be a distraction. 
But when she looked outside, she realised Celia brought numbers of her own. She saw no fey creatures. She'd brought thugs, as usual. The wards would not stop them. They might have to fight, and she started to drop back to leave that to those better suited. Victor was standing right outside the door, reaching into his pocket. It was a glass door. She registered that and hit the deck as they started to shoot, and thus she did not see exactly what happened. There was a flash of light, and for a moment she lost all ability to sense beyond the mundane. It was as if her other vision had been dazzled. When it cleared, she picked herself up slowly. Victor was next to her, having been blown back through the door. He seemed singed, but she could tell he was breathing. A horseshoe was still in his hand. The frogs scattered and were shielding their eyes. The flash must have affected everyone. She also saw, beyond the frogs, what looked like a dozen or so cops, but they were in equal disarray. Victor must have called them somehow. For a moment, she saw Celia as she really was. Banshee, she whispered. That was the word that came to mind anyway. She was dark and lovely and terrible. The frogs picked themselves up and fled, their eyes wide. Anna hoped they would not remember. Victor was also starting to pick himself up, groaning. She was relieved at the final proof that he was alive. Nice one. The illusion slowly flowed back around Celia's form. So, I suppose you know now, like that will make a difference. Anna glanced at Victor. Go back home, she said firmly. I think not. You're far too much fun to play with. So that's why you haven't killed me? I'm too much fun? She'd seen the same attitude in the little girl. Celia laughed. You're learning. A smart little mortal. Victor grumbled. Nice booby trap. He'd pocketed the horseshoe, wrapping it in something black. Celia shrugged. Always best to be prepared. You're worthy opponents. It's almost a shame that I have to kill you. Down, Victor called, following his own advice. Anna hit the deck and something akin to lightning crackled through the space where she had been. Victor lifted his hand to retaliate with dark fire, but Celia was no longer where she had been. Damn, can you see her? Anna narrowed her eyes. No, but I can see a ripple where she went. She ran pretty fast. Folding the road, I doubt she'll have stayed long enough for you to track it. Damn it! Victor actually sounded angry, frustrated. Is there any way we can send her home for a good long while? We're not going to be able to kill a pure she. I was wrong. She let you live in the hope your opposition would goad me into trying. And then she'd kick your butt. Anna wasn't sure of that, though. Celia could have killed her now. She didn't. Maybe she had given up on getting her to take her side, but she was still letting her live. Or maybe she thought she could corrupt me by getting me to try. He sighed ruefully. Yeah, none of us can take her on in an open fight. And if we play her at her own game, Anna tailed off. Victor just turned and walked back into the building. We lose. Then we have to change the rules. I think that's a good break point.
I am AF Grappin. I am one of the hosts and the producer of the Melting Podcast and also author of Star Signs, which I will be reading from. This is a middle grade to YA dystopian fantasy. Um, we are reading when the uh, protagonist Care and his older twin siblings Rita and Reynard are heading to the night festival where they will finally get their fortunes told. Know what their fate is for the rest of their lives. <clears throat> the door was barely closed when the three of us huddled around the box. Reynard opened it to reveal exactly what we'd expected. Three carved wooden masks. Clearly, Father had ordered, ordered them specially made. They were too perfectly crafted to be some shopkeeper's stock. Two masks had the long noses of donkeys, and the third, the beak of a bird. The animals of our star signs stared up at us with hollow eyes, and we couldn't get our hands on them quickly enough. One of the donkey masks was painted brown, the fur brindled with rusty red. Rita snatched it up and slipped it on her face before either of us boys could get our hands into the box. The other donkey was gray for Reynard, and the raven, of course, was mine. Tradition and nature dictated the raven to be black, but father knew better. A black mask would be invisible in the night. That wasn't a bad thing, considering that the raven is the sign of the taker, and takers perform best when we cannot be seen, but I wanted to be visible tonight. The feathers were painted blue, the color of the sky the moment after the sun disappears behind the horizon. The beak was the same color but had a glossy sheen, and the point and a point that looked so sharp I was afraid to touch it. Masks on and hearts floating, we hurried to the square, dashing past people who were only strolling. Music reached our ears, softly at first, but by the time we could see the tents, it was deafening. Torches and oil lamps on stands alternated along the sides of the street. Above, the sky was clear, showing off a bright spattering of white stars. I had not expected the assault on my senses. With every breath, a new smell caught my attention. Meat skewers, roasted vegetables, candied fruits, spiced nuts, steaming drinks, and baked confections only started the list of foods my nose led my eyes to. The noise of a dozen small groups of musicians clashed and melded with one another, warring with the raucous voices of the celebrators. Celebrators, sorry. I usually just write things. <laughs> <laughs> Everywhere, streamers and flying confetti caught the light, twirling and floating to the ground. Groups of people were already throwing little pouches of boom powder against the cobbled streets, the miniature explosions brightening the night with bursts of color. There was a loud crack whenever one of the knuckle-sized pouches popped. Tents of all sizes and colors were pitched right up against one another. Most sported small booths in front of them, showcasing trinkets, crafts, masks, food, or other wares. In the center of the square, a carousel spun round, the fake horses going up and down, the whole contraption powered by a few men dripping with sweat as they pushed the levers that made it move. My mouth watered as I spied some sort of cream-topped fruit pie. The coin my father gave me suddenly weighed down my pocket. It begged to be spent and right away. And I didn't need to spend it on a mask. I dragged Rita toward the confectioner's tent. As we waited to get my bit of that pie... Reynard let out a grunt of complaint, his eyes drifting to the next tent over, which was manned by a fellow with more muscles than I'd ever seen on a person. Ray could never afford the burly man's wares, not unless he had a cache of money that I didn't know about, but that didn't mean he couldn't look. Even my eyes lingered on the beautifully carved metal pieces. Each one could have settled nicely in my palm, but considering it was all made of ember gold, they were well beyond my price range. 
Perfectly detailed renditions of all eight star signs stood or hung in, its, in his booth. Beaver, donkey, wolf, fish, fox, raven, monkey, and goat. There were other animals, too, horses and sea mammals and insects, but neither those or even his ravens caught my attention. What drew my eye was a figurine of a tiny person. He posed as if in mid-dance, but it must have been meant to be flight, not dance, as a pair of wings sprouted from the figure's back. I'd never seen a creature like it, even in my imagination. Sure, I'd dreamed of flying before, but it was always without wings, free flight high above the clouds. This creature had narrow wings reminiscent of a butterfly's, coming to points at the topmost and bottommost tips. What's that thing? I asked, pointing. But the seller's attention was on someone else, and I wasn't loud enough to catch his ears. Rita followed my pointing finger and squinted. A fairy, I think. A what? A fairy, Ray confirmed. Don't you ever listen? Mother mentioned them at dinner. Stars, you are so dense. They used to be worshipped as gods or something before people wised up and realized the stars are more important. They were supposed to help with the harvest and nature and stuff like that. I'll take my star sign over some fairy, thank you. Now hurry up and get your cake or whatever. I want to get my fate read. The pie was everything I hoped it would be. Tangy cherries and spicy peaches exploded in my mouth for all of three bites before the treat was completely gone. Dismally, I looked at my remaining money. It was less than I liked. That pie had been expensive. But that was the way with food lately. Mother mentioned now and then that it was getting more and more expensive to feed the family, but it hadn't really struck me until now. I had a feeling I'd regret later spending so much on that pie. Are you done yet? Come on! The tents spanned the entirety of the square, a giant circle split into eighths, which each section marked with one tiny white tent. At least, that's what the twins told me. Everything was so crowded, I could only see the one white tent Ray was leading us toward. It seemed to glow in the night, though I couldn't figure out where the light came from. Even the shadows refused to touch it. The tent couldn't have held more than three or four people at once, and a long line waited to enter. No one jostled or complained. I took a few steps forward to get in line, but Rita pulled me back. That's the wolf's tent, she said, pointing to a small sign with a painting of the wolf constellation. I'm not getting read by the wolf. Ray glared like I'd just exposed his undergarments to every girl in the city. <laughs> Come on, let's find the donkey's tent. Well, I'm not getting read by the donkey. I trailed after the twins anyway. We'll find the donkey, and Ray will get a place in line. Then I'll take you to find the raven tent, okay? Rita shot a dirty look at Ray's back. Ray will save my place in line, won't he? Yeah, whatever, her twin replied. The donkey tent was two down from the wolf, and we hadn't passed the raven tent yet. Ray settled at the end of the donkey line, looking like he was about to put down roots. Hurry up, Rita. I won't save this spot forever. You'll hold it as long as you have to, Reynard Gafford, she said. A breath later, she ran off, and I was chasing after her. The next three tents were beaver, goat, and fox. As we passed the last, there was a shriek like someone had gotten their hand cut off. Heads turned and followed the form of a girl running away from the tent. She nearly ran into a performer juggling glass bottles filled with glittery liquid. The girl froze, panting, then opened her mouth and repeated cries of no, no, no. Those cries lingered after she disappeared into the crowd. No one went after her. What was her problem? I asked Rita, even though I knew it was a dumb question. How could she know? I'm going to say... I'm going to sing, apparently. <laughs> I'm going to say she didn't like the fate she just got. 
something scary or just bad, maybe. Maybe the fox face told her she was going to end up poor and hungry, begging for money or dead or something. I fell silent. A bad fate? It had never occurred to me that there could be bad fates. We followed our fates, and the stars guided us to the best life we could wish for. A proper life, the one laid out for us. Destiny was supposed to be our friend, according to the embodiments of the star signs, the faces. They were our highest priests, the ones who could interpret what the stars had set out for each person at the moment he or she was born. Chills went down my spine at the thought of the girl, running through the dark streets, trying to escape the words following her. I wasn't so sure I wanted to find the raven tent, but all too soon there it was. The line was far shorter than it had been at the others. There simply weren't as many ravens as other signs. The fish, monkey, and donkey were the most common, and their lines had been two or three times the length of the raven. My turn would come quickly. Rita noticed my hesitation, but she didn't realize the source. Hey, don't worry, you won't be alone for long. Once you're done, just follow the circle until you get back to the donkey tent. I'll wait there so you can find me once you're done. Don't worry, you'll do fine. She kissed my forehead and ran off. Do fine? I was supposed to do something in the tent? <laughs> was there a chant or a gesture that I was supposed to say or do before the raven face could read me? A formal greeting? My heart pounded. A whole new level of worry coursed through me. And worse, now I was alone waiting in line. The faces only left their sanctuary to come and read fates. Father had once told us that in his grandparents' days, the night festival happened every year. Then it was every other year. By the time Father was my age, it was only every five years. It took longer and longer for them to return each time. Tonight was a special occasion. It had been a decade since the faces had last come. I'd been a small child then, and you had to be at least ten years old before the faces would consent to revealing your fate. Even Ray and Rita had been too young. Who knew when the faces would come again? This would be my only chance to get my fate read before I was an adult, and it was too late to change things. Was this something I even wanted anymore? The line took a step forward, and I moved along with it. Father's words rang in my ears. You come from a long line of good fates. I wouldn't be surprised to see some great revelations. He was expecting me to come home with an amazing destiny, just like his parents and their parents before them. I didn't have a choice. I had to get my fate read. The line moved another step forward. I'd never felt so alone as I did in that line of solemn-faced people. At 15, I think I was one of the youngest in the line. No one really acknowledged anyone else. We were quiet, patient, ravens through and through. I couldn't imagine being in line at the monkey tent. They were loud, <laughs> the sign of the helper, but to me they seemed annoying. They were too common and just made too much noise. I shuddered at the thought of being born a monkey. The line moved forward again, and I noticed another dozen people had queued up behind me. I flirted with the idea of stepping out of the line, losing my place, so I'd have to move to the end again. If I just kept doing that, maybe I could avoid having to learn my fate. It would, be, it would give me an excuse when Father asked. I'm sorry, but I just never seemed to make it to the front of the line, I would say, and then I'd be off the hook for another ten years or however long it was before the faces came back. But would I really want to spend the entire festival stepping out and back into line? Hours would pass with me doing nothing but waiting. I could just run off and enjoy myself on my own. Eventually, I'd have to meet back up with Rita and Ray, though, and they'd have fates to share. I'd have nothing. Maybe I could make something up and act like it was my real fate. That idea was promising. 
I could say my fate was anything. Who would know the difference? I would. My heart sank. Lying about my fate would be taking a life that wasn't really mine. But I was a taker, after all. That's what ravens did. It made people think of us as dishonest. Did I want to prove that was what I was? There's nothing wrong with being a raven, but did I want to fall into the bad side of our reputation? The line was down to the last few people before me. Soon, I would be the one in the tent, doing whatever I was supposed to do that I didn't know I was supposed to do, getting a fate that I wasn't sure I wanted. How horrible was it going to be? Would I end up like that girl screaming and running off into the night? My foot lifted. The flickering torch nearby suddenly went out, its fire burning strong one moment and reduced to a smolder the next. All around the festival, the lights went out, and cries of surprise and shock rose from the crowd. The musicians scattered about the square gradually stopped playing, and as if there had been some sign, the entire festival fell quiet. Wind whistled through the square. I suddenly wished for a cloak as the chill wind picked up, and then there was another sound carried by the breeze. Something was approaching the square. Something loud, and judging from the pounding, pounding footsteps, it was big. Don't know what time left, or? Um, five minutes, four minutes. That's not enough for another chapter, sorry. <laughs> it is 10 minutes of any questions for any of these attractive panelists get this book in the dealer's room August's table yep it's in the dealer's room as well I, I don't have any in the dealer's room but come find me I do have books <laughs> I, I will be signing on Sunday at Let's have my schedule memorized I don't have a signing, but I have the table in deal room. Mine is at two o'clock on Saturday. I'll be here all weekend and can always track me down. Be sure to tip your waitress. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Melting Podcast. You can check out our website with submission guidelines and current prompts at themeltingpodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Melting Podcast. Or you could email us themeltingpodcast at gmail.com. The Melting Podcast is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you're free to copy it and share it as long as you don't change it, don't sell it, and always link back to the website. Sound effects are by the Free Sound Project. And our theme is by Drew Rich Creek. <laughs>